0: I'm Adam Kaiser
1: and I'm Jordan Fees. With us is Tamal Caesar, head of group ethics and compliance at Kareem, an Uber company based in Dubai. Kareem is actually the ride giant of the Middle East and was actually acquired by Uber in 2020. But before we get into our conversation, let's cover some of the trending topics impacting practitioners today. Adam, what's happening?
0: It's world's most Ethical companies time a year again. And Ethisphere just announced the 2021 list. And congrats to everyone that was honored. There were nine newcomers to the list this year. You know, a couple of highlights include Avon, Frontera Energy Company, Haynes Brands, Hubble, Lonza Group, friends of ours, of course, a Hellenic Telecommunications Organization, and Workday. So, really uh, nice to see that list continue to evolve. And it's always a uh, it's always good to see the folks that are on it year after year after year who continue to maintain the level of, uh, you know, ethics that they're they're pushing out.
1: So congratulations to the 135 companies that were selected. But to all the organizations in the world that were not selected or or didn't apply, I think I would say, don't give up. Don't let this get you down. It's a really rigorous process that Ethisphere holds these organizations to in this list as they should. So. Even if you're not the most ethical today, you can still drive impact at your organization and champion ethical behaviors and and policies. And I think
0: that's really important to remember. Absolutely. You know, I think as I you know look through the list, it's it's great to see a lot of companies are literally putting most ethical companies right on the homepage of their website. I think I looked at recently, Best Buy had it on their website, and there were a few others. It's just really making it you know part of. Their their organization, their branding, and I think that's that's you know a great thing for Ethisphere as well has really been able to kind of elevate this list to be uh, such a, a big thing that people who are not in the compliance space are, are are seeing and being exposed to. I think it's a really it's a really good thing.
1: Yeah, I love seeing companies you know wear it as a badge of honor and integrate it into their marketing and and other other places where they can then go tell their customers and clients that. Hey, look, you know, we are operating ethically and we do prioritize ethics and compliance throughout the organization. And I think that's, that's really powerful for the industry as a whole. Often, I think these companies, when we've seen them be able to, you know, be on this list and stay on this list, especially it really shows how internally the organization is prioritizing compliance and how they're perceiving compliance, which I think Adam, you and I have heard many times now is not always the easiest hurdle to overcome
0: yeah I mean, it definitely needs to come from the top to not just to sound too cliche, but it comes from the top and it can spread across the organization. and it's not just about one department, it's about everything
1: right. And often compliance teams do have to overcome internal politics in order to kind of achieve compliance success. So let me ask you this, how can compliance teams do just that? How can compliance teams you know work with all those internal factors and getting stakeholder buy-in in order to make sure compliance is being prioritized throughout the organization?
0: Yeah, you know, the, the Kaiser household did not make world's most ethical companies this year, but. Maybe next year. I'm not an expert, but uh, as I like to say, but uh, I think we're going to hear exactly about this topic today on Risky Business with Tamal Caesar.
1: You've made the assumption that most kids don't grow up dreaming of mitigating organizational risk. So, how did you get into compliance?
2: I certainly wasn't dreaming of this when I was five years old, but I got into this field fortuitously. I'm born and raised in in the States, and I had a couple of of jobs there in New York and Washington, working in banking and, and in government. And I wanted to have a pivot internationally, so I found my way to the Emirates in Dubai and actually ended up working for a French oil and gas firm in the financial department, actually as a financial controller. And it was quite an interesting time to be there at that at that moment. The, the company was experiencing explosive growth in terms of sales. And the company really didn't have the proper governance structure to be able to support that growth. So here you had a largely neglected entity that was all of a sudden experiencing this dynamic growth and receiving tons of money. And there was no controls that the company had in place to really make sure that the money wasn't being siphoned off or or misused or mishandled. So it was kind of like the case of being in the right place at the right time. And I saw that there was an opening for me to pivot from financial control to a, a more broad control role, and so actually I proposed to the managing director at the time to evolve my role and to look into that internal control for the company. And I would say, thirteen years later, it kind of speaks for itself. I, I, I started in that role as internal controller, and then I grew and and developed in that. Firm and that company, and took on various additional roles and responsibilities, eventually uh, ending up as the head of corporate governance, overseeing their Middle East, Northern and Eastern Africa, and Central Asian operations, and really enjoyed it and have been enjoying it for all of this time. So, going
1: back to that explosive growth, that's definitely a good problem to have, but it sounds like you really. We know we're learning on the job, learning on the ground. Can you tell us a little bit about how that experience was for you?
2: I really benefited from a phenomenal executive management team who were really supportive at the time. And they really understood the import of my role in securing the broader company's interests. And a lot of these guys I'm still in touch with to this day because we all understood what was required, but they were patient enough and supportive enough to really cultivate my career and allow me to grow as the entity grew, I have a great deal of gratitude to, to all of them for supporting me in that capacity. But it really incubated and laid the foundation for my perspective in compliance in general, which is how important and critical governance structures are to an effective compliance program. And not just the governance structure, but really the internal controls. If you really don't understand a company as well as the operations understands the company, then even the best compliance department is bound to miss the mark. It really requires you getting your hands dirty, getting in the weeds, really understanding what's going on at an operational level. And I think that's what that opportunity really enabled me to get familiar with and understand really as as an important pillar of of an effective compliance program.
1: And I think you hit on such a key point that management can be either super enabling and empowering and be a driver of production in your job or it can hinder that. So we always ask our guests to share an OSHIP moment. And we consider these career-defining moments either because you can't believe you just figured it out, you were stuck on something and had that breakthrough, or... Things really just hit the fan and you can't believe that just happened. So tell us, what is your oh shit story?
2: <laughs> Anyone who's been in compliance long enough, I think, has been you know, through some tough times. And I think that applies for everyone in the industry, no matter what level you are. If you're really doing your job well, at some point or another, you're going to get in an oh shit moment. And I think I I certainly have a library of these moments, but maybe one that I can share with you is going back to your point earlier about when management can be both an advocate, as I experienced early on in my career, and then later on in my career, experience the exact opposite, which is when uh, management is actually an adversary. And I use that word pointedly, and I do really mean that there are times when Management simply isn't signed off or sold in terms of what compliance is doing. And if you think about our remit in many ways, we are looked at as a cost center. We're looked at as an impediment to people's bonuses and business expanding. And so if management really doesn't have that incentive in some ways to listen to compliance, then they do look at you as an adversary, even if you are ultimately protecting the company and even the executives themselves from legal action or any legal sort of consequence. I once had an experience with a regional CEO who really was not sold on the program that we were putting together and I, at every sort of juncture was working to thwart the interests of what we were doing. So whether that was signing deals behind our back and taking action that would be inconsistent with what the code of conduct and the company values, that was really tough. And you would think that normally in, in normal instances, there would be consequences for that. And usually there are, but I, I would say it probably is more frequent than not. When you have a really powerful and well-connected executive manager, especially one that's a high performer, a lot of times boards and other management will look the other way and they will forgive Lapses of judgment or ethical lapses because the business interests are simply too important. And going head to head with those kinds of executive management that are really not only entrenched in the business, but then adversarial is really a moment that you have to, you know, contend with yourself. Because in this scenario, you either push back and, of course, stand by your principles and implement what you are supposed to do. But when you're doing that, you're actually risking your job itself, right? Because these executive management ultimately have a say, especially when you're talking about the C-suite, they have a say in whether they can fire you or not. So you're really putting your own livelihood at risk when you are towing the line and you have a choice to make as to whether you're going to tow that line or whether you're going to essentially quit or rather maybe even give in. And I would say I've seen variations of that. I've seen professionals who've acquiesced to senior management in the hope of coming to some sort of dantant or equilibrium with them. I've seen compliance you know, officers quit. I myself chose to fight. And it was certainly an oh shit moment because there were many moments where it was just uncomfortable for everyone involved. When you're really staring down someone who's clearly more powerful than you in the organization and who could even fire you, and you have to look them across the table in front of their peers and say, hey, you did not do the right thing and call them out and take them to task in terms of making sure that, you, that they're complying with the company's rules and regulations. So I really learned in that instance that it's really important to have allies, and that's really the way you can balance out these oh shit moments. When you feel isolated, when you're contending with these really hot situations, allies are your best friends. Other people in other departments, other places who can advocate for your professionalism, who can advocate for the work that you're doing are absolutely critical in those moments.
0: Let's pivot a little bit. If you look back at your career to this point, what do you see as one of those moments of just like pride? You say, Wow this is a memory that's going to last for a while.
2: Receiving the certification from the Department of Justice that the compliance program was fit and proper after the extended DPA that I was a part of in the firm. And this is all public information. I had an opportunity to work at the German engineering and contracting firm. And they had a, a troublesome period with the DPA, the Deferred Prosecution Agreement, that was leveled against them with the U.S. DOJ. And so they initially had a three-year designated DPA with an external monitor. And because they were not able to certify their program within those three years, there was a lot of tumult. There were multiple turnovers of CEOs and chief compliance officers during that three-year period. It was quite a tumultuous period for the company where the company actually was expecting at some point that perhaps they really needed to look into how they were going to get out of this and so i was hired in the midst of this tumultuous period and where the dpa the initial dpa was extended so they were in an additional two-year extended deferred prosecution agreement and those two years i'll tell you guys i've never worked harder in my entire life uh, than those two years you have the external monitor breathing down your back. You have the DOJ literally rummaging through every single little thing you're doing emails, every decision you're making, everything is under intense scrutiny, intense review by external counsel, the monitor's external counsel the the company's external counsel, and then you have the DOj. It was a real serious situation, and after that extended dPA we we actually got the program certified. So after the 5 years that the company was experiencing this monitorship all due to all of our collective efforts, we we were able to bring the company through that period and that that remains one of my one of my happiest moments with, without a doubt.
0: I'm sure it was also one of your biggest moments of relief too. So you're talking a lot about sort of international work that you've done. So like having really a global view of things what does that look like for you from like your career having coverage of all the major areas versus a tighter focus on u.s laws
2: yeah i would say i love it i love working in, in in every corner of the globe you really find that every every country even has their own cultural nuances and norms when it comes to how they conduct business and then even how they operate And so, being exposed to a multitude of perspectives, influences, ways of doing businesses has really been quite enriching. And I highly recommend for sure anybody to really pursue international careers because they they are really rewarding when you talk to people who do not share the same perspective or way of thinking or even value system as, as you. You really become astute on how to manage. People and things, and you you learn to get creative into how to address certain compliance challenges in different parts of the world. And so I really enjoyed it quite extensively.
0: So Kareem is really the rideshare giant of the Middle East, and you guys were acquired about a year ago by uh, a small outfit called Uber. How has that process been, and, and what are some of the things that were just major changes, and maybe things that have stayed? the same.
2: That's been really awesome. I've loved being in the tech industry. I've come from the oil and gas industry and the construction and engineering. So you're talking about really old industries. And then to pivot to the tech industry has been really a phenomenal and very fascinating opportunity for me. And they brought me on board pre-acquisition to essentially build out their compliance department. And that was a really exciting time. I've got to do some really incredible stuff, namely working on the acquisition itself and looking at the compliance on the acquisition itself. When Uber signed the asset purchase agreement to acquire Kareem and every M&A deal, that acquisition is subject to certain covenants and compliance provisions. And I was really in the midst of the details of that APA, to really ensure that Kareem didn't violate those those covenants, and that what we stated reflected reality in terms of where the program was at and what we intended to do, that agreement really it was quite a stressful period at that time because we had a distinct closing date and there was tons of work to do to get us over that hump. But it was phenomenal when we got the official notice that. We had satisfied all of the requirements in the APA and that we could actually close that transaction. And of course, when you're bringing a non-U.S. entity up to compliance with U.S. federal laws and, and regulations, it's an enormous task. You really get to see the difference between the obligations that American companies have to undergo and submit to versus what a lot of international companies can get away with. A lot of international companies don't have that burden to carry that, that, that American multinationals do. And so we had to bridge that gap. And I, I was able to build out Kareem's compliance department, of course, with, with tremendous support from the Uber counterparts. It was really a, a wonderful collaborative effort, but it's been fascinating.
1: So we spent most of our time so far talking about your career and the trials and tribulations that have happened there, but we'd like to to pivot and talk about the future of compliance. So are there any new initiatives or projects that you've taken on recently that you can tell us a little bit about?
2: So the company started off disrupting the taxi business through this very simple ride-hailing application. And then eventually snowballed into the food business and then into the delivering of anything. And now they're doing groceries and, of course, last mile logistics services. And and so the company really has expanded into all of these offerings. And last year, actually, we were the first app in the region to launch what we call a super app. And what we've done is actually just amalgamate all of those services into one singular app. And now all of those services are not only available through that app, but now we've expanded on that super app to go into the e-payment space, which is allowing people to make transfers through the app, um, to be able to pay merchants through the app, to allow our captains to redeem sorry our cap when i say captains we call our drivers captains that's an internal word we use and it's really about dignifying the work of being a driver right it's not just a driver it's a captain someone who's really taking you know responsibility for people's welfare but in any case going into the payment space has been really fascinating because it's unprecedented in the region and it's allowed us to really target those populations that are perhaps underbanked or not banked at all. And then, of course, to leverage the efficiency of having all your services basically at the touch of your finger and being able to facilitate those services, including the payments of which all at the touch of your fingers. So that's been really fascinating to to witness and then to ob- obviously take care of the compliance behind it, which is quite strenuous to say the least.
1: Absolutely. Well, just Amazes me that Kareem and Uber, just the persistency to break into new verticals and continue evolving. And I'm sure, yeah, that makes an interesting compliance situation for you. But I think that's exciting to be on the forefront of innovation for sure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So you are a GAN customer, and so we'd be remiss not to discuss technology at least a little bit. So where do you think compliance officers should be focused today from a tech perspective? What are you thinking about?
2: I fully endorse your shameless plug because when I was tasked with building the compliance department at Kareem, I had a carte blanche, so to speak, total greenfield. And I had learned in my previous environments how messy compliance can be when the entrenched systems and these archaic old systems of these companies get in the way of compliance doing its job. So many companies have all these different tech systems. They've got SAP. They've got Oracle. They've got these random softwares. None of them speak to each other. They're owned by different departments. It's all over the place. And so, One of the most important and critical things I wanted to do was make sure I could centralize that. And you guys allowed me to do everything that I wanted to do under one umbrella. So it's a one-stop shop like our super app. (laughs) You can do everything compliance related in one single location. And that really was what I wanted to bring to the company. It's a technological company that moves fast, like you were talking about, Jordan. You need a compliance department that works with that. You can't have a cumbersome department that's taking ages to you know, get through basic you know, due diligence or conflicts reviews or whatever it may be. And that technology really allowed us and enabled us to facilitate and to cover all of our risks, but to do it in a way that's really efficient, effective, and user-friendly. We've gotten really uh, great feedback from our colleagues that it's very efficient and effective for them to just a couple clicks, get things done. So I really think that centralization and in, in the use of technology is not only the future for compliance, but it's really a necessity in this world that's really rapidly evolving, especially in the wake of COVID. And if I may add the ability to create analytics and then you know, what I would see developing at a later stage, leveraging AI to, you know, give smart feedback is really where I think compliance is going to be taking the next evolution. And the next step is when you can, you know, leverage those analytics, really have that clear feedback about the performance of your compliance department, and then, you know, leverage that in a way that really is effective and meets the needs of the business. And and, and that's where I see you guys are certainly a, a partner in and where I think the compliance industry as a whole should and, and needs to go.
1: I guess focusing in on the compliance industry as a whole, what do you think we're doing right or wrong as an industry?
2: On the technological front, I think there's a lot of room for improvement, but I do see a lot of companies adopting these sort of technological platforms to to help increase the uh, effectiveness of their programs. But I think it. In terms of what's wrong as the industry in a whole, I think it's more fundamental, which is the very governance of compliance itself. I actually read an article or a, a survey rather released by the Association of Corporate Counsels in their 2021 CLO survey. They polled around 1,000 or so chief legal officers. And of, across that entire group of respondents, 74% said compliance reports into legal for me, that was a staggering and alarming figure. And as someone who's obviously been in that situation throughout multiple companies, certainly I understand what that is. But the reason why it alarms me is because compliance really needs to have its independence. I'm a really strong advocate for that. And many, of course, argue that compliance ultimately has legal implication and finds much of its basis in legal doctrine or regulatory frameworks. But that really misses the mark because something can be legal, but not compliant. And the ethos of the program often gets couched too much within a legal framework without paying respect and homage to the values side of the program, which gets missed. And the import of what compliance conveys and is seeking to do at a cultural level, at a decision-making level, at an influential level, at a governance level, often gets overshadowed by the legal interests and the legal side of things, which I think is a real big miss. So we've seen this explosive proliferation of compliance professionals and departments all over the world, yet even in spite of this, and though it's a great thing, Corruption seems to be more endemic than ever, and every single day, there's yet another corporate scandal that's of epic proportions and and that surprises everyone, and I think it's because compliance is not having the visibility at the board level and at the executive management level that it really deserves. So I'm a really strong advocate for the independence of compliance, and I think that's a real big miss for the industry.
1: What I'm hearing is it sounds like you're really frustrated with the governance and politics that are playing out all too often in compliance.
2: Absolutely. Compliance, we're involved in everyone's business, right? We make everyone's business our business to our detriment and to our benefit. And that means we're in the center of everything. And so everybody has a say, everyone has a view and compliance is exposed to a lot. The best Thing that we can do is empower the compliance organizations with the hierarchical structure that really insulates them to the best of our ability from any operational department. Removing the politics and giving compliance unfettered and direct access to the the, the really the strategic powers of the company is totally critical.
1: I think ultimately will yield better results for for the organization. So. We always talk about the importance of the code of conduct like we put it we put it up on a pedestal, and everyone is obsessed with the code of conduct. But do you think this is still true today, or do you think the industry is evolving?
2: What's your take? The code of conduct is obviously the bedrock of compliance, and it's something that we take a lot of pride in as compliance professionals in creating crafting and ensuring that the company's sort of values and ethos is really reverberating through the code but If you're really honest about it, and if you talk to, at least in my experience, if you talk to operational people, they maybe read the code once, twice, if at best. It's really not something that's top of mind for people, for employees. And so I think there's an overemphasis on the importance and the role of the code. It's absolutely important and necessary. you know, it's kind of like the constitution of a company, right? You need to have that and it, it embeds and solidifies in writing what is right and wrong. But when that's all you do as a compliance pro- program is refer to the code and abstract and principles and abstract, you lose the focus of where the corruption is actually happening, which is in the weaknesses of governance, in the weaknesses of controls and the lack of segregation of duties that is occurring. And so the more nitty-gritty operational things get lost when we just simply couch everything compliance under this umbrella of the code, and we think that the code is going to somehow translate directly to ethical behavior, it just doesn't happen. And so we need to be serious about what that means and the implications of that. And that means getting down into the details, getting down into the weeds with the operations people and putting in a system that is really, that brings about transparency and accountability at every level and layer of the organization.
0: All right. So as we're coming to the end of our program today, what kind of piece of advice would you give to somebody who, who may actually be interested in getting into compliance or have industry peers that might be looking to do uh, a kind of pivot or change into that?
2: Yeah, I would say first, come on board. <laughs> Compliance is, a, is an incredibly rewarding industry to be a part of. It, it brings you a, a sense of joy and satisfaction knowing that through the sort of capitalistic corporate structure and those powers that be, you're really bringing a sense of ethics and morality, if you will, to the whole context of business and, and giving justice to what's right. At a really important level. But if I would say for those who are already in the compliance field, one piece of advice I would have is to actually seek out opportunities where companies are under a DPA, a deferred prosecution agreement. And I say that because it's easy to do compliance in an organization when there's really no one breathing down your back or no one ripping up everything that you're doing or looking into every decision that you're making. It's a whole nother experience when your work and everything that you're doing is under intense scrutiny and pressure. And when you even carry legal liability as an individual for the actions you take and the statements that you make, you only really get to understand what it's like at a real sense when you are put in that situation. We are the boxers, and you want to step into the boxing ring so that you can really experience what it's like to be in the ring and to be in those situations where there's a lot of pressure and and duress. And you really learn so much about what is really critical for a compliance program, what's absolutely essential, not only through the guidance of working with the DOJ or any regulator like the SFO, but you really understand at a fundamental level, the underpinnings of what makes a compliance program successful and sustainable.
0: Jordan, did you know that Gann Integrity now has its own e-commerce store, iHeartCompliance.com? Tell me more. So we put together a store of iHeart Compliance merchandise because we started a campaign a couple of years ago on Valentine's Day and asked people, why did you fall in love with compliance? And we got a great response to it. People would tell us why they're in it, why they love it. And then we started giving out bugs of all things at trade shows and conferences, which are alien to us all now. So we thought, you know what, let's launch it this Valentine's day and let compliance teams have at it and and grab merchandise that they want. And we're not uh, in the business of trying to make money on merchandise. So it's just up there basically for cost, but we want to spread a little love for compliance throughout the community.
1: Yeah. I think you know it really is a destination for compliance professionals who are proud that they're in the compliance and ethics field and and really love compliance and want want to put that on a shirt, a mug, a notebook, and really tell the world how much they love compliance. Also a great gift or little incentive for compliance teams, although we can't be together in person right now. So what we want to do for listeners of the podcast, if you use promo code risky20, you'll get 20% off your entire order at iheartcompliance.com. And we can't wait to see what you order.
0: That is a deal, people. So definitely embrace that.
1: Do you have an OSHIP oh moment that you'd like to share knowing that it will help others like you? Shoot us an email at riskybusiness at com. We'd love to hear from you.